Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a truly unique and exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. In this event episode, I'm talking with the host and co-host of A Climate Change Podcast. Yes, you heard that right. In these conversations, we'll go behind the scenes on their pod, learn the history of each of their podcasts, the topics they cover, the people they talk to, and learn what it takes to cover climate change. It was a privilege to host these interviews. I'm inspired by the work each are doing. Although they are all climate podcasts, they all offer a unique take on this worldwide threat that is climate change. The eight pods I interview are Warm Regards, Climactic, the Climate and Security Podcast, Reversing Climate Change, No Place Like Home, Climate Conversations, Climate Ready, and Climate One. Some have been podcasting for a while. Others are relatively new to this platform. All are producing awesome content. I hope you are inspired by these interviews and subscribe to their podcasts. On that note, links to their podcasts are in my show notes. For those who are new listeners to America Adapts, this podcast is about how society is going to adapt to climate change. I talk to scientists, planners, landscape architects, national security experts, journalists, thought leaders, both domestically and internationally, all about adaptation. Take a look at the archive to see all the amazing guests that have shared their stories. And please consider sharing this episode on your social media. It's a great chance to hear about eight of your favorite climate podcasts. And please stick around until the end for my thoughts on how this very special episode came together. Okay, let's jump right into these amazing interviews. These people will inspire you and enlighten you on the most urgent issue facing the world today. Hey, Adapters, I am here with Dr. Jacqueline Gill. Jacqueline is an assistant professor of paleoecology at the Climate Change Institute and the School of Biology and Ecology at the University of Maine and co-host of the climate podcast, Warm Regards. Hey, Jacqueline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have followed Warm Regards. I don't, you probably don't know, but I, I think we started right about the same time. It was the summer of 2016. And so a little bit of parallel histories there. Yeah, it was pretty cool, actually. I remember having some initial conversations with uh, Eric Holthaus and Andy Revkin, who were my original co-hosts, and just, you know, talking about the lack of, of climate change podcasts. And I think by the end of that summer, there were a bunch of really great ones. So it's been really neat to see that 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 field kind of develop. And we all have different angles, which I think really is, kind of makes for a nice, diverse ecosystem. Yeah, I, I actually did find that a bit shocking. I'm like, I'm going to do a podcast. There must be so many people doing this. And it was actually hardly anyone at all. So that was a bit exciting. So what is Warm Regards all about? With Warm Regards, we we really wanted to to take a, a kind of a different approach to the way that we usually talk about climate change. And a lot of that is really informed both by our experiences as scientists and communicators and, and sort of realizing that this this approach to science communication that really just emphasizes facts and, and rhetoric um, isn't always very effective. And so a lot of us follow the science communication research field, if you will, sort of the science of science communication. And what we were really discovering is that empathy and storytelling and narrative are often more effective at really getting people to change their minds about controversial issues like like climate change. And we really felt like there was this 
lack of space to talk about the really human side of what is often a very sort of scientific or political story. And we wanted to change that. So that's, you know, partly where the, the title itself, Warm Regards, comes from is this idea that it's not just a pun on a warming planet. It's it's also the fact that we really do want this to be a very down to earth human podcast. So even when we bring on scientists, we encourage them to really be their full self and uh, just approach these conversations as three-dimensional human beings. Okay, so in the model for the podcast, you'd mentioned Eric Holthouse, one of the original founders, and Andy Redkin. Actually, I had Andy on, and he was a great guest. What's the like, typical episode? What's the setup? Yeah, so we basically start off, um, myself and a co-host, riffing off of some issue, something, you know, some current event or something going on or a new scientific story, just to kind of get warmed up and, and just basically have some commentary on something that's timely. And then we transition. Um, usually I do a, a sort of mini monologue where I try to go a little bit deep on on some topic uh, that is related to our guest. And really, again, just with this meta goal that we have with the show of, of really showing the human side of climate change, this is sort of an opportunity to just really kind of, you know, bare my soul a little bit and just, you know, be a, a full three-dimensional human being uh, and not just a sort of a character caricature of a scientist as someone who is, you know, maybe a little bit more cold or, or, or <laughs> I guess, rational. And then we bring on a guest and we try to have a real diverse uh, group of folks that we bring on for, for conversations. Uh, we try to approach them more... It, you know, more like a, a chat you might have over beers with with a friend. But we, you know, they might be scientists who are working on climate change or, or youth activists. We've had people who, you know, really are having experiences with climate change on the front lines um, from all different walks of life and, and different disciplines. So we really try to emphasize the, the diversity of the voices that we bring onto the show. And then we've, you know, it's interesting. We've tried a few different things to kind of wrap up. Um, initially, when when uh, Eric and Andy and I were starting out, we were trying this thing called positive feedback, where because the the science of or the discussions around climate change can often be so so sort of depressing, um, we wanted to end on a positive note. And each of us were supposed to talk about something, you know you know, cool or exciting in the news or whatever. And we always would struggle to find something like to get excited about related to climate change. And so lately, my new co-host, uh, Ramesh Langani, uh, who's a scientist and, and professor at Doan University, he and I have started this new segment on the unexpected science of, of climate change. So ways in which a warming world might affect the everything from our health to to our ecosystems in ways that might be surprising. And sometimes those are stories of resilience. Sometimes those are stories of, you know, why your your favorite coffee might be in peril. But uh, yeah, we had a lot of feedback from our listeners that they, even though we tried to pull back a lot from the science in the podcast, there's still a lot of hunger for for science. And so we, you know, we've, we've tried to give a little bit um, back in that way while still holding true to the core of, of what we try to do. No, I think that's good. And the fact that who you are, your fellow hosts, that you're scientists, you know, take advantage of that if you're good communicators and give people some science that they can digest. And I was going to ask you why the pl podcast platform, but as you just described, it's like you're know, having a beer and a conversation over that beer. I mean, I think that that's a great explanation of why you would use a podcast. Yeah, and I think I think somehow 
you know, if you, if you think about a podcast, the, at least the ones that I listen to or where I really get, get into them, you almost start, start to feel like, you know, the, the person they're, they're almost like a friend that you have and, or it's, it's like a, 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 an intimate conversation, right? Even some of the more scripted ones that, you know, something like Radio Lab, where, you know, clearly ours is a conversational podcast, and but there are, you know, more scripted podcasts where you, you just feel like you get to know the people more. And I think you just have this opportunity to, uh, I guess, get in people's heads and hearts a little bit more easily with a podcast than, say, a blog or other kinds of media where, you know, again, it, one of my biggest goals as a science scientist and a science communicator is to build empathy for for scientists and also for the problems that scientists work on. And so I think we can achieve that really effectively when you start to feel like you get to know somebody a little bit better through these these conversations in your head every couple of weeks. Yeah, I think one of my favorite letters from a listener is she basically said, Doug, you accompany me on this long journey between, you know, she's driving on the East Coast and was, I was like there in the car with her. And I thought that was the coolest thing that you know, she was able to listen to it in, in such a way. Yeah, we've gotten feedback like that, too, where where people really associate you know, they might like binge listen on a road trip or right. while they're, you know, in, in the hospital with a loved one or something. And they you just start to create the sense of connection between the sound and the place. And, and I think it's just yeah, we're, we're just such a storytelling species that I think the podcast revolution, I think, really is tapping into that need for just for connection with other people. Okay, so you are an unusual in that you're an actual climate scientist and you're hosting a climate podcast. I think that's fantastic. And you have your own history. You, you're very, uh, what's the right word? You're just very active in trying to communicate science. And I think you were involved very early with the March for Science. And so, yeah, how, how has that been being a climate scientist and doing a podcast? I think it's been actually really fun. And it's, it's kind of funny that I... You know, as a scientist, I'm, I'm trying to like talk about the science as little as possible on warm regards where oftentimes when we're, we're brainstorming guests, it's like, ah, oh, you know, let's, let's go like get someone from the Cajun Navy or like, let's talk to some people who are really on the ground, which isn't to say that, you know, scientists aren't also on the ground. I mean, some of our most powerful episodes are about the kind of really personal experiences that we have as scientists when you go into your, your, your field or, into your study region and you, you know, might see firsthand a, a dying coral reef or a melting glacier. I mean, those are very emotional experiences for us. But yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, I feel very much called to, to a sort of life of public service through science. I, I work at a public university. Uh, my, my research, my salary are, are, are publicly funded. And for me, I just, I've, I've always felt that it's my duty as a scientist to do work that's in the public good and then to make that work as accessible as possible to communicate that out. And so when I first became in, you know, interested in social media, this was back in, I think, 2010 when I first joined Twitter. Um, to me, it just seemed like this wonderful democratizing tool where we could make ourselves as scientists more accessible to people. And really also there's a sort of flip side to that where you know, the more accessible we are and more visible we are, the better we kind of broaden the representation of what it means to be a scientist. And so we know there's a lot of research that shows that having role models and representation, you know, really helps inspire the next generation of folks. And so if people can see someone who looks like me and comes from, you know, the like a woman from a rural background, you know, first generation college student, 
and, you know, who struggles with chronic health problems and those sorts of things. And they, and they say, wow, that person can be a scientist. Maybe I can be a scientist too. And so I, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons why I feel like this work is important, but for me, it just, it was always a no brainer. I'm just, you know, this is, this is what I set out to do. And I feel like it's important work. Well, what I think is liberating too about the podcast and someone like you is that so often I think the public wants a scientist to say, what is your opinion? We know you're what your science, uh, you, you have journals and you have those kind of articles to kind of share that information, but just, just from your gut, tell us what you think. And I think the podcast allows you to let your hair down a bit. So that, that, that's quite liberating. Yeah, I agree. And even, you know, when I started grad school back in 2005, the, the landscape still had not really shifted very much from that old school model of, you know, a scientist's job is to just, you know, it's just the facts, ma'am, right? You just go out, you take your data, you publish them in peer reviewed journals, but you don't really act as an advocate, right? You just let the data speak for itself or let the policy folks or the communicators take that data, interpret it, and then do with it what they will. And during just the course of, of my graduate experience, by the time I defended my PhD in 2012, that landscape had completely changed. And there was a huge demand for scientists to be advocates. It's like, well, why, why aren't you speaking up? We're looking to you to really tell us what to do. Um, you have the knowledge. You have, you know, the direct connections to why this work is meaningful. And also, it's important to remember, too, that scientists, we are often called to these fields because we care about these problems. And that's a feature, not a bug of science. And and so, you know, really, I think we can capitalize on that energy. And so it's just been really liberating to kind of feel like there's more air in the room now where, where scientists can be advocates. We can speak out and we're still considered honest brokers in terms of our research. OK, so I just have a few more questions for you. And since I have a college professor on the line, I've been working with a small team and we've, we've been pushing this whole podcast in the classroom. And I actually had this small Twitter discussion with uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. We both know Catherine. She's been on the podcast. She's been on yours. And she was making a list of the resources that she uses in her classroom. And I said, do you use podcasts? And she's like, well, no, but that's a great idea. And she's been on a million podcasts. Is it something that you use as a resource when you're working with students? You know, it's so funny. I've used Twitter in the classroom. I've used, uh, we've, we've done blogging and we've, uh, done Wikipedia page editing and I've never had my students do a podcast. I know. It's you like, have a podcast. I know. I know. And, and so, yeah, I think there's a, a, a really great opportunity to, to, to use that tool a bit more. I think students can be kind of shy when it comes to getting themselves out there, but once they start to use these tools, um, they just find it really empowering. And so, yeah, I think it's a logical next step. It's kind of following my own progression, right? Through, through first Twitter and blogging and then starting to feel like those tools weren't sufficient to do what I wanted to accomplish with, with my communication goals. And then I, that's what caused me to step into podcasting. So I think you're right that it's uh it's kind of wide open for it, just engaging students in the classroom, not only using the podcasts in as ref like resources for students to use, but also for them to create podcasts. And it's a really different kind of science communication from the other kinds of tools we might be using. And I, I think some students could really create some pretty amazing content too. Well, the, the the small team that they they kind of work almost externally. They've created the discussion guides, and you don't have to stick with those. But it's basically you listen to the podcast, and here are some questions and some other resources. And it's just, yeah, I'm promoting because it's like, of course, you know, if you have a substantive podcast, you, getting students to listen to it is great. So anyway, it sounds like you you might contemplate that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Okay, what's up next for Warm Regards? What are some of the upcoming guests, or do you have any sort of long term plans for the podcast? 
Yeah, we've uh, we've got some some really cool folks lined up, really excited to talk to some science fiction authors and and really also just to, to branch out. One of the things that I've been wanting to do from the very beginning is not just talk to experts. I want to also make these connections with people who are having real lived on the ground experiences. So, you know, not just active, you know, professional activists or professional researchers, but just, you know, your average everyday citizens and making those connections, it turns out is really difficult. But it's we're, you know, we're brainstorming some ways on the show that we can get those kinds of voices on, you know, on our podcast so that folks can hear not just from the sort of once removed experience of climate change, but from people who are, you know, living through wildfires living through melting glaciers, um, you know, who's who, who are experiencing the direct impacts on their health or their livelihoods. Um, and those are the voices that we really we've been really wanting to try to highlight and amplify from the beginning. So, yeah, we're we're still working on it, but I'm, I'm excited to to kind of to give it a shot. Some it's we're committed to doing it by the end of the, the year if we can. Very cool. Very cool direction. Okay. So this is a question I asked of all my guests. If you could recommend one guest to come on my podcast, and if you don't know specifically, I, I mainly just deal with how we're going to adapt to climate change. Do you have a guest you could recommend? Oh, uh, have you had Mustafa Ali on? No, I have not. Oh my gosh. So he's one of the major folks involved in the environmental justice movement. And he um, I was fist pumping when I was when he was on our show, mm-hmm. uh, just every every answer that he gave just, you know, I had kind of gone into the, the episode feeling kind of down about the state of the world and, and politics and uh, the lack of will around solving climate change problems. And he, he just made me feel so empowered and so positive. Um, I think that. Anybody who has a chance to listen to, you know, to Mr. Ali is, you know, don't don't miss that opportunity. He's he's one of our, our great minds right now. Awesome. Awesome selection. OK, um, thank you so much for coming on and just appreciate what you're doing with Warm Regards and obviously in your day job, too, and just important work. But thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and also for being a, a, such an important part of this podcasting ecosystem around climate change. I think it's, um, you know, we need these voices and we need what we need what you do. Hey, Adapters, I'm back and I am here with Mark Spencer and Rich Bowden, co-host of the Climactic Podcast. Rich and Mark are calling all the way in from Australia. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug, pleasure to be on. Hello, Doug. Great to hear from some Aussies, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for the false advertising. uh, I'll get into that in a bit here, but, you know, let's just jump jump right into this. What, What is Climactic all about? Can you give a little bit of history of the podcast? Yeah, so Doug, this came about because I, being a super podcast addict myself for a long time, was looking for a podcast in Australia about Australian environmental groups, about the environmental community in Australia, and I couldn't find anything that really filled that niche. Uh, There was, of course, like The Guardian and, and big newspapers, but they weren't doing a great job of covering local issues. And so when I went looking for a podcast and wasn't able to find it, I thought, well, something kind of needs to fill this niche. And it's actually developed quite well into this community radio platform where we're not just uh, two podcasters gassing to each other and, and having a chat, but we're actually going out in the community, doing interviews, helping groups tell their story. And we're actually now a distributed network of contributors around the country. We've got four hosts on board and we're bringing on more and groups are actually using us as a platform as well. 
Yeah, I've been following that. Rich, any sort of additional history there? How did you get recruited? I think you were the, the first recruit. Yeah, we went into a uh, Australian podcasters Facebook group and uh, Mark put up a question saying, anybody know anything about uh, Australian climate change podcasts? And I sent a message and I said, well, no, but it's something that I'd always love to do. And from there, it just went, okay, let's do it kind of thing. And uh, I just hitched on to Mark's energy and passion and uh, I'm 55 so it took a little bit of convincing for me to get get on board although I've always been interested in causes and from there we've sort of developed we started off with something that was pretty heavily scripted I think Mark where we more or less Mm -hmm. monologued at each other (laughs) Uh, and we developed a bit bit more of a style and as Mark said we've taken on some new people recently and it's really exciting time. I actually got a chance to meet Mark when I went down to Victoria last spring, and it was great meeting you in person, Mark, and hearing how you guys are kind of starting it up, and you guys have made a lot of progress. And so I, I guess, Rich, let me just start with you. Could you give a flavor of some recent episodes? What can people expect from like some, some of the content and the episodes that you're doing? It's people's stories. That's what we want to tell. We want to get out there and find people that are out there in the community that are doing work, good work for climate change, and tell their story. And it is Mark Spencer's dream and his vision, and I sort of tag along with it, but it's uh, the idea is to tell the story of ordinary people and with the new people that we're taking on board as hosts, we're getting out there and we're, we're talking to people as far as um, the that have been in the climate change community for a number of years but also new things like regen ag is something we want to get into now regen agriculture is starting to be a big thing out here doug i've just moved out to the country in three years and for the first time i've started to appreciate that farmers are actually at the at the front line of climate change they're seeing the changes uh, if a lot of them have been on the on the land for generations and their fathers their Mothers, their their grandparents all harvested at different times because of climate change, and it's this regen ag that's starting to take hold here. It's the uh, using agriculture not as something that needs to be extracted, uh, but something that needs to be healed. The the land needs to be healed, and this is in very much in in tune with climate change. So those are the stories that we're starting to tell. And Mark, as you both know. I mean, with two hosts, I'm sure you have your own challenges. And so you have additional hosts and you've got new voices and new characters, but at the same time mm. is like, what is the content? You know, what are they going to talk about? Who becomes personality of the podcast? And I think one of your new hosts, I actually interviewed her before Bronwyn. Um, I think mm-hmm. she was in my Australia episode, but uh, the, the thinking on that, and I think part of it is that it's not what my podcast is, but you're almost a sort of an activist podcast, which is pretty exciting down there. <laughs> Yeah, kind of in a way. Um, it's been funny. We've been talking to a lot of activists in the community and people will very quickly turn around and say, Hey, you're helping us tell our story of what we're doing around activism, around trying to get changes made in, in local government or in state government or even federal government. And they'll say, you're an activist as well. And I'll say, well, I, I, I don't think so. I'm just a podcaster. I just wanted to, to make a show that I wanted to hear, but we kind of are getting to that level in some ways. And what you can really expect from the show is that, yeah, there there is some variety in the characters you'll hear because not only are we interviewing different people every week from, and the really, the aim initially was to talk to as many 
people from as wide a variety of backgrounds mm-hmm. as possible because we wanted it to be relatable to potentially anyone. Yeah. So how I used to phrase this was what we want to do is provide a show that someone who's volunteering at an environmental group can take an episode of, and then when their friends and family ask, why are you spending your free time volunteering? Why are you doing this? Why do you care so much? And if they feel they don't have the right words or the right way of expressing the importance of what they do and their passion, they can say, look, listen to this episode of this show, and it'll tell you everything you need to know. So, you know, we've talked to uh, the Climate Reality uh, Group down here in Australia, of course, which is Al Gore's group. Through that, uh, they've been kind enough to accept me into the, the Climate Reality training in June up in your old neck of the woods, Doug, Brisbane. So I'll be, you know, in a room with Al Gore for three days later in the year, which I'm excited Exciting. and terrified about. So that's kind of like the high end. Uh, but then we've talked to a lot of grassroots groups. So uh, you'll know probably about this huge network of groups called Stop Adani down here. We've got the issue where Adani, which is an Indian mining conglomerate, well, not just mining, but but huge Indian conglomerate that's into mining, is trying to exploit some of the world's largest coal reserves here in northern Queensland, which um, would be a huge carbon bomb and would be a pretty terrible thing if it went ahead. But the people who are fighting this are spread into geographically concentrated groups. There's over 70 of these groups across the country. So we talked to, well, we didn't actually talk to them. Stop Adani Gold Coast uh, had 11 of their members get into a studio, talk about why they joined, what the group means to them, what their victories have been. And then they were able just to tell their own story in a very unfiltered way, which is something that other media wouldn't give them the opportunity to do. They'd have three or four sound bites or three or four points to fit into an article. They wouldn't get to talk about themselves and their lessons and their trials and tribulations for an hour. So really what we are is a community radio platform and also a kind of citizen journalist training where all of our hosts are out there doing interviews with people that interest them and hopefully interest other people. Okay, so you're based in Australia. I guess make a pitch and the fact that I have you on this podcast in the first place because I think it, it, what you're doing is valuable, of course, but I most of my listeners are American. Why should they listen to your podcast? So it's especially true in the podcast industry, but I think it's true for other things as well. You know, I don't think podcasting is even an industry yet down here, whereas in the States, you can call it the podcast industry. Australia is, in a lot of ways, America, uh, but with about a 10-year delay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that very, fair to say, Rich? Look, I think that's very well put, Mark, yes. I so might add something to that if that's all right. <laughs> so really, we should be in our kind of like late Bush, early Obama phase down here, but we'll see how th- we're not right now. So we'll see how things go in our May federal election. But why Australia kind of matters, I think, to American viewers is, aside from my own accent, and I'm a, I'm a Seattleite who grew up in New Zealand and now living in Melbourne, is aside from the Australian accents, Australia really is a canary in the coal mine for how America can develop and how the rest of the developed world can develop. I mean, Australia has so many natural and geographic advantages over the rest of the developed world. And if we can show that through a lot of community effort to get us off the path we're on, if we can do climate change adaptation and transition well, then I think that is something that matters a lot to the rest of the world, especially to American listeners. 
and Rich, I want you to take a crack at that too. And, you know, dropping Aussie expressions and all that kind of stuff would be gold. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think what Mark said was a real ripper. So, all right. Um, there we go. With- <laughs> Fair dinkum. Look, I think it's very fair to say that uh, we follow the United States, the U- UDUG. So what we do here is something that's happened perhaps in the United States uh, a while ago. So the question about why your listeners should listen to what we do in Australia is really taking stuff that's already been tried and true in, in America and applied to Australia. Now, unfortunately, at the moment, we have a government that doesn't have an energy policy, let alone a climate a climate change and an energy policy. We really do have a government that just sits on its hands and just panders to the coal industry. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable in Australia. It's unacceptable for the young kids coming through, the, the climate strikers. It's unacceptable in Sweden in place for people like Greta Thunberg. It's also unacceptable in America for people that listen to your show. So I would really love Climactic to be in a position where American listeners can, where American listeners can listen in, can tune into the show and take heart and uh, think, well, that's great. That's, uh, that's Australia is, is at least doing something through the interviews that we do. So yeah, as I said, Mark, Mark's point about being 10 years behind is, is a little bit cruel perhaps, but it's, uh, it's very true. And, um, <laughs> sorry to uh, be cruel. No, that's all right. It's cruel to be kind. So, no, I, I totally agree with what Mark said, yeah. And if I can, Doug, just a bit of social proof around that. Why should more Americans listen? Well, um, over our 44 main episodes of the show so far, we've had over 2,000 listeners in America. So, I mean, really, you should really jump on the bandwagon now before it's <laughs> <Right>. too late. <laughs> before it's too late, because we're going to exclude you from listening. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to say, and there are a lot of... Uh, Americans such as yourself, Doug, with strong links to Australia as well. I think that's an important thing to consider. Yeah, and don't knock yourselves too hard. I think you guys are going through your own crazy politics. I mean, I say that with our politics, crazy, crazy. But it, when I lived in Australia, I always felt that you guys were 10 years ahead of us. But uh, it, it does seem like Australia <laughs> has taken really a few big steps backwards, which just really is depressing to me because at the time I thought you guys were really kind of taking the lead on some things. But here's a little quick fun question for you, Rich, is that when I worked in Australia, all my coworkers had all sorts of nicknames for me. And my favorite was you bloody yank. Um, any good nicknames for Mark? <laughs> <laughs> this is um, old. Well, you've heard of, uh, you've heard of septic, the uh, nickname septic for, for Americans here. No, no, that would never. No, no, you haven't. Okay. Septic is a rhyming slang for septic tank yank, and so mm. it's a it, it's a playful thing like pom. Uh, it's not meant to be serious or anything like that, but it's a, it's a very good nickname. So I might try I might try mark out with uh, septic, but I <laughs> I don't think he'd enjoy it that much. Bloody yank sounded so affectionate. Last question. I want Mark. We'll start off with you, and you, if you could recommend any guest that would come on America Daps, who would it be? Ooh, yes. All right, so. Luckily, I've been the host down in Melbourne, you know, which is uh, Australia's second largest city, soon to be its first in terms of population. It's a rapidly growing city. It's very dynamic. There's a lot going on. And being in this kind of target-rich environment for interviews, I've been extremely lucky with talking to some amazing people. But it's only recently I've got to speak to some of the most amazing, inspiring people I've ever met in my life. And these are the young people behind the School Strike for Climate. 
Uh, mm. What listeners may not know is that, you know, in the six months since Greta Thunberg in Sweden has been striking from school and kind of kickstarting a lot of global movement on climate change, Australia was the first country to really pick up her banner and mobilize in a big way. Yes. Uh, we had three young school students uh, from Castlemaine, which is a regional town just about an hour northwest of Melbourne here in Victoria, who took it upon themselves to also strike and organize a, a larger strike and then a rally and a protest. And that culminated last year in November in nationwide school strikes and marches. So in a recent episode, we had Maisha Moyne, who was the MC of the Melbourne strike, which had over 3,000 students out on the street, shutting down our central city district for a couple hours. And she was amazing. She blew us away. And we are speaking to a lot of the other organizers as well, organizing to do some stuff with them on the next strike, which is going to be worldwide on March 15th. So I'd highly recommend, Doug, that you, you speak to them a bit as well. And they're just amazing. All they need basically is a little bit of space to be able to tell their stories and they, they take it from there. And they are, you know, sadly, we've left it to the younger generation now, even you know, younger than myself in my 20s. Uh, we've kind of let things go. And now the teenagers are the ones who really have to step up and do something. Excellent. Excellent choice. Okay, Rich. Okay, when I do editing or whether I do an interview for Climactic, it's always always judge it as to whether I, I learn something. Uh, it's all right to hear someone's story who's, you know, you're pretty much sure that you know what's going to happen. That's great. But when I listen to something and someone says a point or something that I hadn't considered before and I walk away with it and I'm still thinking about it and going, wow, you know, that sort of thing. That's what I measure a good interview. And there were, there were a number of people that sort of fit into that category, but the main one for me was Mark's interview with lady called Lee Baker and she's very much into the the, the drawdown Paul Hawken uh, points of view now one of the things that she said that was very interesting to me was that when we talk to people when we talk to people that we don't necessarily agree with and Doug you did do an episode on this didn't you deconstructing a climate skeptic then the worst thing you can do is to uh, confront them the best thing to do is to listen to them, listen to their point of view, not necessarily agree with them, but as Lee Baker said, if you push, they're going to push back. And nobody's got all the truth. It's time that we do listen. I think that was a, that was a big lesson for me. Okay, guys, fantastic. I'm so excited for the work that you're doing down there and the fact that it's just, it, it's growing. And I, you just, as you guys can appreciate, weird things start to happen, exciting things start to happen when you, with the podcast, especially if you're delivering great content, it sounds like you are. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Doug. Absolute pleasure, Doug. Longtime listener. All right, awesome. Keep listening. Hey adapters, I am here with Dr. Shutta Shakaborde, and Shutta is an old friend, and I'm going to refer to as Dr. S. Dr. S is the host of the Climate and Security Podcast. Dr. S, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the Climate and Security Podcast all about? We started this podcast as a collaboration between myself and the Center for Climate and Security. It's a nonpartisan think tank based in Washington, D.C., where I'm recording with you from, and the purpose of the podcast was to showcase the extensive work and the incredible network that the center has brought together in the decade plus it's been active. 
And twice a month, the podcast aims to bring exclusive dialogues with this network and really showcase the work that's being put out. And we talk to researchers, educators, civil servants, military personnel from all over the world um, that work at the nexus of climate insecurity. And we ask these folks to share the stories and visions of how they think we need to collectively prepare at this, what we consider a time of very high consequence risk related to the planet warming, related to climate change. So that's the purpose of the podcast and how it came together. The Security Center has been around for a bit, but the podcast is relatively new. And so why exactly did you think a podcast would be a good way to communicate? It's an innovative new approach for think tanks that have been established that hasn't necessarily been part of the communication strategy, but which is is really helpful in terms of getting the research out in a way that is more widely disseminated and people can actually understand it when they hear about it through people, through conversations, through stories. Some of the stuff is it can be high level. It can be really technical. But when you hear retired or active duty military talking about their experiences, what they've seen at the forefront during their careers and then why they've chosen to continue to work on it and to share those those stories and the importance of sharing all of that information, then you begin to really get to people and get them to understand that this really isn't just an issue that is somebody else's problem somewhere far away. But these are people who have lived it, seen it at the forefront. And they're the ones that are willing to continue to work and share. And so it must be something we want to listen to. Plus, military is actually very funny. I mean, it's fascinating to hear some of these ladies and gentlemen tell their stories because they've lived through, some of them have lived through some really horrific situations that civilians can only begin to imagine. So it's almost like comedy is a compensation or it's a way of dealing with a lot of what they've experienced. And so they're able to express what they've seen in a way that is easy to relate to and almost humorous some at times to listen to. So it's also a great platform for just getting really getting to the forefronts with a lot of these folks that experienced it firsthand themselves. Well, that's good because, you know, it's obviously a sobering topic and you want to make your topic more conversational because it's a podcast. So it's great that they can kind of bring that perspective to it. So can you share some highlights, you know, some names and some recent topics that you've done of late? So this is a relatively new podcast, and we have the next episode that's coming out is with Rear Admiral John White. And so John White had a 32-year career in the Navy, and he's now the CEO and the president of the Ocean Leadership Consortium. And he has just extensive knowledge from his time in the Navy and then the work he's done since on climate change impacts. So he talks about sea level rise, coral bleaching, depleting and changing aquatic ecosystems. And then he also gets into man-made pollution, like toxin and nutrient infusions into waters, which resulted, you'll remember, we've been hearing about the red tides down in Florida. We're likely to see things like that again. And so to be able to talk to those who have that level of knowledge and how it's relevant currently to people's daily uh, lives. That's that's kind of what we're trying to showcase with this. We've had some other really cool military people on the show as well. Another Rear Admiral, Anne Phillips, she was one of the first female commanders of destroyer ships, aircraft carriers and replenishment ships. Basically, she commanded a lot of big ships. And that since then, you would think that in itself is impressive. But since then, she's in the Virginia State Cabinet and she's the head of resiliency. So she's she talks a lot in this was the third episode for our podcast, I believe. 
And she talks a lot about how the state of Virginia is now working on building up its resiliency to sea level rise, coastal erosion and whatnot. And she's leading that initiative. So that's a really cool person that I was excited to have on the show. And then we have civilians. We have those who are really working at the nexus of climate insecurity and sharing their research and their findings. And so one example is Michael Wu. He's the principal of a consulting firm, Converge Strategies. And he talks a lot about energy, the electric grid, its history, and how, you know, when we have these long-term widespread power outages, it increases the actual risk and threats, not just in terms of potential actors who want to attack us um, for nefarious purposes, but also for natural disasters. And the natural disasters and actual intentional disasters reinforce each other when you have energy outages. So we get we go a little bit into the energy sphere there. And then another one I would, I'd like to highlight is Christine Parthamore. She's the director of the Climate and Nuclear Security Program at the Council of Strategic Risks here in D.C. And that's really cool because we talk about how climate nuclear security also are related. And that's not something people naturally think about together. And I never really thought about nuclear threats and climate change together. But there's a really interesting narrative there and a historical account of why those who work in the nuclear space really consider environmental changes and the planet warming. So I'm going to leave that as a teaser. But these are some of the episodes that we've already recorded. And there's a lot of cool ones that we were able to get while I was on location at the Planetary Security Initiative in The Hague. And that was global experts coming together, talking about the wide range of issues around climate insecurity. And so to get that, you know, global perspective also really enhances the breadth of what we're trying to capture with this podcast. Let's see if I can ask this question properly, that people probably don't understand the sort of the breadth of what national security really is. And I'm not quite sure how your center covers it, but you know, there's food security. You mentioned energy security. There's sort of military threats with the podcasts in the contents of climate change. Do you take sort of a thematic approach? Are there more urgent threats than others? And are those sort of explained in the podcast? How does that work? Do you have sort of like a long-term goal with the podcast regarding national security and climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. So the essence of what the center is trying to do is saying that ultimately there's a responsibility to prepare, given that we have more insight than we've ever had about the threats that we face nationally and globally at all levels, in fact. And because we have greater knowledge, we have a greater responsibility. And so really the essence and the purpose of this podcast is to showcase the knowledge that we have, what the challenges are that we need to overcome what the opportunities are, and then what we recommend. And then those recommendations really come from our responsible, there's a responsibility for all stakeholders involved. So what does that mean for the person who is just going about their business, trying to live their lives? How does, how do they play a role in contributing their skills towards overcoming some of these challenges that we collectively are facing versus at top levels of government, what can be done, what sort of policy initiatives need to need to be supported, and then what sort of collaborations can be encouraged. So it really covers the whole scope of all the stakeholders that can play a role in and have a responsibility to prepare because we have greater foresight than we've ever had before. That's really what we're trying to get at. You have a niche of national security, but it's obviously a big niche. And so let's say my listeners are in the adaptation space. Why would they want to listen? And so this isn't just for national security professionals, right? No, exactly. And that is actually a really good point. We're trying to where there's already so much great work that's being done and there's really no need to continue to preach the choir. I think a lot of us who have podcasts uh, probably, you know, think about this 
like I do <laughs> late at night while I'm thinking about, okay, great. We're just, we're putting out great information, but we already know this stuff. So how do we really expand this and make it interesting and increase the audience? Because ultimately a lot of the work that's being done without public support, without a groundswell of just having different communities, additional communities get behind some of the things that are being put forward and recommended, it's not going to go anywhere because a lot of this really still is policy and politics. And so ultimately, we're trying to reach those audiences that wouldn't otherwise would be really fascinated by some of these stories and some of these insights, but wouldn't get access to it otherwise. So the national security national security community is one that is relatively insular in the sense that it's not easy to gain access if you're not military um, or if you're not on the periphery of the military, how do you really know? It's almost a black box. I I knew nothing. I'm a civilian. I come from academia. I moved from New York City to D.C. And I really knew very little about what was going on in the national security enterprise. I mean, it blew my mind once I joined the Center for Climate and Security and I started hosting this podcast and asking these questions and listening to these to these um, insights and stories that I was just like, this needs to be shared. These are really fascinating narratives that Regardless of who you are, you have a role that you can play and you have something that you can learn from this. Ultimately, we all are concerned about our security. And when we are putting men and women out there on the front lines to support America and all things that are our identity as the United States, we want to make sure we're doing our part to not make it harder for them to keep us safe and secure. And so if training, if readiness, if ability to complete missions are at stake because of impacts related to climate change, then that's something that we need to know and that can really encourage a wider spectrum of people and communities to care and get involved that might not be aware or involved as of yet. So it's a way to really just bring attention and tell the story of climate change in a way from um, the perspective of those in national security that might resonate and rever- reverberate with those communities that otherwise haven't really been paying attention, but could be really critical towards improving how we where we go forward with climate change policy and progress. Any sort of surprise feedback from listeners, anybody who kind of resents what you're doing or just positive feedback? I mean, that's always I think what podcasters love getting is just the random feedback. Yeah, no, it's been actually really positive. It's been going out to a lot of um, academic institutions and a lot of the those who have already been on the podcast are sharing it with their networks and circles. So it's it's rolling out slowly, which I think is uh, also important. You don't want to just put it out there. I personally, as the host of the Climate and Security podcast, do get a, <laughs> do get some surprise feedback because um, I also do a lot of television and broadcast media, and so I will go on different networks, conservative to liberal from Fox News to CNN, and I will talk about climate change. And so I have personally gotten a lot of interesting feedback, some of which can <laughs> can be visible if you see any of the clips in the comment sections right, under right, the right. clips, which is always that's that's always interesting. But the podcast itself is relatively non-controversial in the sense that, again, it's security and who doesn't want to make sure that they're those who are putting their lives at risk to protect us and just generally our way of life um, is secure currently and going forward. So that is that is relatively non-controversial. OK, great. All right. Last question. And I ask all my guests is if you could recommend uh, one guest to come on my podcast, who would it be? Oh, you know, that is a good question. And I knew you were going to ask me that. And then I had so many <laughs> ideas that now I'm thinking like who I would actually say one and only. I would say Ann Phillips is exceptionally cool in that she, to be a woman in the military at the time that she was and to get to the rank that she did and to still be such a humble and funny storyteller. She just has so much experience that you could pull from that you could talk about. And now she's actively 
doing her adaptation, continuing to serve and talking about how the state of Virginia adapts and increases its resiliency, especially at the naval base in Norfolk. And she lives in the Hampton Roads region, which is really vulnerable to rising sea level. And so to really get her perspective and somebody who is also actually working actively to do something about it, I think would be an awesome episode for your listeners. And we just have a taste of it on my podcast, but I think you could really get into it from an adaptation point of view and see what they're doing at that at that level, at the state level. Okay, great suggestion. I've only had one national security guest. That was Judge Alice Hill, and that was great, but I need to kind of keep coming back to it. So, go Oh, ahead. and she's, she's on our board at the Center for Climate and Security. She was with me at the Planetary Security Conference. So it is a small world, and when you're talking about climate in Washington, D.C. Yeah, she's great. I've never, I guess, met him. I wouldn't say serious, but she is just, you just, you're kind of in awe in her presence. She is just, uh, she seems like a remarkable person. So anyway, it was a great episode. All right, Dr. S., thanks for coming on. That's great. I encourage all my listeners to go check out your podcast, but uh, thanks again for doing what you do. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. This was fun. Hey, Adapters, I am here with Marianne Hitt and Anna Jane Joyner, co-host of the podcast, No Place Like Home. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Hey there. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. All right, really cool to have you both on. I listen to your podcast regularly. Okay, so let's just give some background to my listeners. What is No Place Like Home all about? Well, Anna Jane and I, so this is Marianne, and we both live in red states. I live in West Virginia. She lives in Alabama. And we wanted to tell stories about climate change that would speak to people's hearts and also would come from unexpected places. And we really wanted to Left up the voices of women in particular. So we, our tagline is it's, it's a show that gets to the heart of climate change. And that is what we have been aiming to do. And we've been having a lot of fun doing it. Okay. So Anna Jane, I guess a little bit more history. Did you guys sort of plot this together? Were you just having coffee one day and saying we should do a podcast? I mean, what was sort of doing a podcast sort of a, a unique thing? Yeah, well, we're both big podcast nerds. <laughs> and so I think we, we kind of understood that it was a very intimate medium that is, especially at that point, there weren't a lot of climate podcasts, um, happening. But I think it really was, it, it was basically a desire to have a more kind of intimate and personal and raw conversation and also something a little bit more maybe spiritually deep than a lot of the wonkier climate conversations happening out there. So yeah, it was just, um, we kind of envisioned like, what would we, what would it be like to like, just have our listeners kind of there, you know, over our shoulders as we're actually having coffee and talking about these issues that matter to us a lot. Okay, so you both work at the Sierra Club, right? I work at the Sierra Club. This is Marianne. Um, I've worked here for 10 years uh, with the Beyond Coal campaign, and Anna Jane is a climate activist at large. (laughs) Okay. Myself. Okay. Works with, I do work with lots of organizations, including the Sierra Club. Well, you're well-placed in Alabama. They, they need you down there, so that makes me happy that you're there. And I, I guess re- the part of the reason for that question is just uh, – so this isn't the official Sierra Club podcast. That is right. So Anna, Jane, and I actually both independently had the idea of a climate podcast that would tell amazing stories that you couldn't stop listening to and hopefully with surprising people that you might not have heard from otherwise – so we both had this idea independently, and when we realized that, then we realized maybe we needed to take this from an idea into a reality. And we really grappled with whether to try to talk the Sierra Club into having this be an official podcast or keep it our own project. And we decided to keep it as our own project in part because we just wanted to have the 
the freedom and the creative license to kind of take it where it would lead. Um, but the Sierra Club has been a sponsor and we're very grateful for that. We definitely wouldn't have the podcast without the support of the Sierra Club, but it, it is our, it's our baby. <laughs> our pod baby. Well, that, I think that was a smart move. I think once you get the communications department involved with things, like you said, the, ch- the chain of command and people want to kind of second guess what you're asking, all that. So, yeah, you can kind of take, I think, a lot of the personality out of a podcast if you're not careful. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that it's, I don't know if we knew it going into it, but it's also been kind of a form of a creative outlet and a, a form of therapy for, for me and Marianne to be able to have these very kind of intimate, even beautiful conversations that are a little out of the box. Okay, so could you both share maybe a, a couple, I don't like to ask other podcasters, what are your favorite episodes, but maybe useful episodes for my listeners to kind of understand what you talk about. Maybe you both could give a couple examples of the thing that, who you've talked to in a couple of recent guests. You bet. Um, a couple that I would point to are one we just did with Adrienne Marie Brown, who is a social justice leader and a teacher and a healer. She wrote this book called Emergent Strategy. And then several episodes back with Rashad Robinson, who runs Color of Change. And those were two conversations where we talked about the kind of interweaving threads of civil rights and social justice and climate change and things that I think are coming together more now with the rise of the Green New Deal and the, this political moment that we are in. But I think that is new for a lot of folks. And both Adrian and Rashad are people who've been living in that world for a long time and just had incredibly wise things to say, both about climate strategy and also how to learn from social justice movements and from people who have been in the struggle for a long time about how to do this work. So those are two conversations I really loved. Yeah, those are two of my favorites, too. I love this season that we're in right now. We're calling it all the climate feels, and it's really kind of digging into the emotional and psychological pieces of climate change. And just every episode and conversation has been so nourishing and kind of uh, I just walked away feeling a lot more grounded and hopeful. And one of those, one of those was with Adrian Marie Brown, but we also did one with Dr. Kate Marvel on, um, on cur- having courage, not hope to fight climate change, which I thought was just a really interesting frame. And she talks about how like a lot of great stories, you know, it, it, you do feel like it's a little overwhelming or you're up against great odds, but that's part of why showing up matters and why courage matters. Yeah, that would be. And then the other one that I loved, I mean, I love so many of them, but we just did one with a poet called Joel McCarrow. And we did one a while back with one of my favorite musicians and artists named William Matthews. And both of those are kind of about the intersections of creativity and storytelling and art and climate change. And that's you know one of my favorite topics for sure. I'm curious about how the podcast has influenced your day job. You both have day jobs, but now you've been doing this long enough. Do you see that it it, it comes up, people that might be listeners? Has it influenced how you've sort of approached your job? In my job at the Sierra Club, one of my responsibilities is to be a a spokesperson for the Beyond Coal campaign, which is the largest campaign in Sierra Club history. And we're in the middle of retiring all the coal plants on the grid in the United States and replacing them with renewable energy. We've got just over half the coal plants announced to retire. And so being a podcaster has helped me a lot in those responsibilities because I just have this regular practice of using my voice and articulating the things I most want to say in the world. And just like anything else in the world, whether it's playing a musical instrument or a sport, I think being able to 
articulate what you want to say in the world is better with more practice and if you do it more. So that's a one really practical way that I think it has surprised me as a asset to my work. Uh, and then the other is, is we really, I am one of the most delightful things that happens to me is meeting our listeners. And, you know, I think when everyone is making a podcast at some level, you're talking into a microphone alone in a room and wondering if, if anyone is out there on the other side, listening, maybe kind of like writing a book. Is anyone going to read this thing? And, and I just love meeting our listeners and I, I love that they are on this journey with us. And so in terms of how that has benefited my work, I think it has just really expanded my network of people that I'm connected to and learning from and in the struggle with together. What about you, Nan Jane? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting question. I don't think anyone's ever asked us this before, but I started, we started a podcast right when I started freelancing. So I, I left my kind of official job and have been consulting on my own for about two and a half years now. So in some ways, it just feels like another one of my work projects, right? (laughs) Like It's like, oh, I'm working on these four or five things. and The podcast is always one of them. But it also, I think it definitely has taught me. I've always been really fascinated with communications. And my degree is actually in environmental communication. And I think being a part of this, like the kind of practical production and execution has just made my thinking around that a lot more concrete and tighter. And and that certainly has influenced other pieces of my work when I'm thinking about how to communicate and what the different platforms are. I think having this real experience in in production essentially has has been a huge value add. And then I would totally agree with Marianne. It's just, I mean, it's like a highlight of my life, especially because I live in this like tiny little rural town in Alabama. So um, just being around people in general is always really exciting, but I think it's so fun. You know, we were just in DC last week and ran into some folks who, who love the podcast and it's just, it's like, Oh, people love our baby and, and we put a lot of work into it. So that feels really special that it's, that it's helping and supporting other people. Yeah. You have all these listeners, but a lot of them don't realize it's actually quite a lonely job. <laughs> okay. So this might be a little bit of an unusual question. And I, I think about how you, you, I think the tagline is you get to the heart of the matter and, you know, I think allowing people to sort of think about, and correct me where I'm wrong, but your feelings associated with climate change and some of your guests have reflected that. And have you ever thought about interviewing sort of a bona fide climate change skeptic and obviously not having a debate or anything, but talking more about what their feelings are associated with being a skeptic? I, I had it on, and you too, I'm sure probably, you know, Mark Morano, he came on my podcast and, you know, I was, <laughs> I was a little nervous and it turned out to be my most popular episode of all time. And we talked about what motivated him. And that was, I, we had no interest in having a debate. It was about what motivated him. And I'm just curious, have you considered that or would it be something you would consider? Cause just kind of getting inside the mind of a climate change skeptic, I think would be fascinating to a lot of people. You just have to get away from trying to debate the issue, but just sort of the motivations and such. We have definitely toyed with the idea of getting my dad on. Who okay. You okay. Um, would say climate skeptic. I would say climate denier. Um, he's also an evangelical pastor. But yeah, I love that idea. I hadn't quite thought through that lens, really getting deeper into the feelings and emotions and kind of motivations versus uh, devolving into a, an epic debate. But yeah, I think, I think it's a great idea. Marianne, what do you think? <laughs> you know, I think... You know, one of the things I do feel is what we're going for in the podcast is to try to connect with everyone's common humanity. Um, and I think that exploring that with a, a climate skeptic, it would definitely be fascinating. I would be fascinated by it. I mean, one of the reasons that I think Anna Jane and I connect as friends is because we both 
live in rural places um, in states that are big supporters of Trump. And we know that the the way that the climate movement and climate activists are portrayed can be really overly simplified and kind of monolithic. And I think the same the same applies uh, to folks on the other side. Um, you know, Anna Jane mentioned her dad is a famous evangelical pastor, a huge following. They were um, her attempts to persuade him about the realities of climate change were captured in the years of living dangerously. And I think one of the things over about their relationship that I've seen over the years is, you know, there are a lot of environmental issues like mercury and plastic in the ocean that, you know, he cares a lot about. And so, yeah, I, I do think that connecting with our common humanity, whether or not we persuade each other is, um, is a good idea. I also will say, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't want to give airtime to climate skeptics when we're in an emergency and we're running out of time and I'd rather give airtime to people who are trying to solve the problem. But, um, but I, I definitely think there's a deep vein of, you know, interesting topics to, to touch on for sure. You know, I was in that same boat with Mark Moreno. I mean, I've been in the climate space for a long time and, you know, he's been this villain for the longest time and Randy Olson helped connect me. I don't know if you know Randy Olson and he does science communication and, so he came on and the whole goal, we told him in advance, it's like, we're not here to debate you because he's a bulldog. He'll run you over. It's just like, what is your history and all that? And so when I, before I published it, I, w- I was nervous. Like, am I just giving airspace to someone who is just negative in the space? But you know, my listeners, the feedback I got, it was just amazing. Some people were like, I was nervous to listen at first. I thought he would influence me in a bad way, but no, he was a great guy. You want to have a beer with him, but he's crazy. And they, it just, um, it hit exactly like I wanted, and it's been a learning tool. I've had some, you know, university professors use it in the classroom. So I encourage you, but you'd have to set it up the right way. But I think just the how you guys do your podcast, it could be really interesting if you have the right questions and you have a safe space for them. So I, I totally get it, Marianne. I had that my inner debate myself, but it just, uh, you know, I decided to do it, and it, I'm glad I did. It, it's been a very useful podcast. Well, and I do think one of the things Anna Jane and I have wrestled with. with climate change and podcasting is that we agree with each other and we agree with most of the people that we have on. And there is a certain amount of tension that makes for a good story and an interesting conversation. And, um, and I think, you know, it's something that we have talked about in terms of, of our, our guests in future seasons is how do we lean into a little bit more tension while also staying true to the vision of what we started out to do in the first place. Oh, I get it. What's up next? Are you in the middle of a season? Or, I mean, are you still thinking about next season? What do you guys have in store for folks? Do you have names of guests and such? We are in the middle of a season. We have a couple more for this season, and then we'll take a pause and um, put together our next season. But we have a really, really powerful episode coming out next. It actually should be out this week with Bernadette Dementiev, who's the chair of the Gwich'in Steering Committee, which is the Native American tribe um, that's being being very impacted by climate change already, but is also would essentially be destroyed if they drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And that was a very, very powerful conversation, just hearing from someone who's kind of on the front lines of both fossil fuel development and and climate change. It was one of the more moving episodes I can recall doing. I was in tears a couple of times, so really excited about that. And then we have um, one coming up um, with two folks, um, Corinna Gore and Carlos Rodriguez, who we're going to talk about really kind of dig into faith in climate change. And then, yeah, that we'll have one or two after that for this season and then move on to the next one. Did you want to add anything, Marianne? Um, well, th- so this this season, the 
the theme has been all the climate feels, and we really have tried to delve deep into the emotional, psychological, spiritual sides of climate change. And when we set out to do this, it was several months ago. It was before the Green New Deal. It was before the young people climate strikes really caught fire around the world. And uh, before the release of this new book, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, that I think really has gotten a lot of people spiraling into an existential crisis about the kind of world that we're leaving behind for our kids. And um, and so I think we tapped into something we didn't even fully realize that we were tapping into. But now I think, frankly, people's anxiety and panic about climate change is on the front page every day. And that was really what we were trying to do a deep dive into is how do you keep doing good work? How do you how do you hold on to your joy? How do you persist and, and thrive when you're dealing with this existential crisis every single day? And so we have had these really, frankly, life changing conversations with folks. And I hope uh, hope everyone will listen because they certainly have helped Anna Jane and I uh, through this very tumultuous last few months. And I think they'll help other folks as well. So I got one more question that I want both of you to answer. So what I do on my podcast for all my guests at the end is I ask them to recommend a guest they think should come on the podcast. And if each of you could take a crack at that, that'd be awesome. So I am just in love with Marianise Hegler, who has written a couple of pieces lately about the both like kind of the emotion, the emotional. She's very raw and emotional in how she talks about climate change, but she also writes beautifully and very powerfully about the intersection of race and climate change. Um, I just think she's a really fascinating voice on the issue right now um, and just a lovely human being. You know, I think I would uh, point you to a couple of people who are, I think, doing heroic and visionary work around economic transition in coal communities. One of them is Dan Conant, who uh, is here in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, where I live, who owns a company called Solar Holler, which is hiring people from the West Virginia coal fields, uh, from those communities and training them as solar installers and is on a mission to get solar in West Virginia, you know, on par with any other state in the country and do it, you know, with workers from, uh, communities that have been left behind by the, the fall of the coal industry. Um, and then Brandon Dennison is another inspiring young West Virginian. He's based in Huntington and has a company called, or a nonprofit called Coalfield Development Corporation that is doing similar work around revitalizing the economy and doing job training for folks in, uh, in coal communities. So there are really inspiring stories out there of younger folks who are just taking these problems head on and, you know, solving some of the problems that people say can't be solved and, I am inspired by them every day and would definitely encourage you to have them on. Cool. Great selections. Okay, guys, that was fantastic. Again, it was a pleasure to connect with fellow climate podcasters and, and just thank you both for what you're doing. Thank you for having us on and thank you for your show. Yes, thank you. Good to be good to be in the family together. <laughs> hey adapters, I am here with Ingrid Timbo and Alex Maroner. Ingrid is a policy associate at the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, and Alex is a research associate at the Alliance, and they co-host the Climate Ready podcast. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having us today. Thanks for having us. All right, guys. Excited to have you on. And Climate Ready, I think, is all about adaptation, sort of like I am, right? Alex, Ingrid, just what what is the Climate Ready podcast all about? I think the basic idea for Climate Ready was that 
there is a lot of interesting work going on in both climate change and we have a lot to do with fresh water and uh, sustainable water management as well. So there's so much going on in terms of engineering, finance, policy that we really just wanted to share some interesting stories out there, whether it's some ongoing challenges that are people are facing some interesting projects that are going on or or maybe some more topical issues. And so we really just want to highlight a lot of different perspectives and bring in um, a lot of different experts to, to cover us because they might be able to explain it a lot better than I could. I mean, the only thing I think that's a pretty good summary. I think the only thing I would add is, you know, we we talk a lot about, oh, all, climate change is coming and these sorts of things. And, and more and more we're saying, no, climate change is actually here. And we just want to give kind of practitioners and people who work in our space Good examples of work that's already being done, work that's being done, you know, on the ground around the world. Um, so we have a really global perspective of different types of communities that are really being proactive and and solutions that are being developed and and being honest also about the challenges as well. So giving people tools and approaches and things that maybe that they could try um, as well within within their communities. Okay, what I found very curious about you guys, and maybe you can clear it up, is that okay, shoot, you're at this Water Alliance, but then I think the World Bank funds you. Is the Alliance a subsidiary of the World Bank? How, what's the role of the World Bank in all this? So the World Bank is one of our two co-chairs. Uh, so. Agua is um, has been functioning since 2011 uh, as an informal uh, network of, of members uh, that work around climate and water. And so we have been this informal entity that has a couple of co-chairs that lend some help in terms of both, I guess, funding and financing and, and governments and organizational structure. So one of the two is the World Bank. And for a while, the other co-chair was Conservation International. And now it is uh, the Stockholm International Water Institute or CWE. So. And see, we actually host our secretariat, so they have some employees as well that help us out, and some of our funding goes through there. The World Bank is more in terms of they help a lot with project support, and you know they sit as a, a co-chair on our steering committee, so it's a lot of kind of higher level guidance, if you will, in in helping a, a setting with priorities uh, in terms of with other members of the steering committee. Okay, I've always thought the World Bank was sort of an impenetrable organization, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> any farther along, but uh, that's great they're involved. But Ingrid, do you want to add to that? No, I just say neither are we. we it is a very large, impenetrable organization, and we work with kind of a pretty small, small group. So maybe both of you could kind of weigh in, just maybe giving a couple examples of some recent episodes, and I guess starting with you, Alex, what have been some recent topics and guests? Sure. So we just wrapped up our second season. We have, so we're still relatively new. We have a lot, we're a lot more green than, than you are and a lot fewer episodes. We have about, uh, we have 20 so far. And in season two, we covered a lot of different interesting topics, kicking it off uh, with a, a really cool one about the roles of women and indigenous knowledge in climate change policy and their expanding role from the perspective of, of someone from a small island developing nation. And we've covered a lot of different topics as well. So climate change in the classroom, how it's being taught from elementary all the way through graduate school. A few different episodes about nature-based solutions for reducing risk and for environmental management. Interesting ones about coastal community adaptation and some other ones about, uh, I guess, adaptive governments in the Murray-Darling Basin and bringing practitioners more into the policy realm, which is a lot of what we do with Agua. And we capped off the season with an episode where we really focused on the concept of resilience, because that's always been an 
underlying theme through all of the all of the episodes, and so we kind of just dove into that a little bit. Yeah, any additional background you want to give, Ingrid? I would say we also, I know you've interviewed Elizabeth Rush, and we had her on to talk about Rising and Coastal Adaptation this year, and she was lovely. So that was definitely one of my highlights um, for the year. You know, I listened to that episode and, uh, you know, I listened to other episodes and you guys, it just seemed like a different topic. You guys, you guys seemed like you had a lot of fun with that. I know a lot of your guests are probably very technical and they're getting technical information out. And so, yeah, it was, it was great. Elizabeth came on. Uh, she, she's wonderful to talk to. Yeah. yeah. We're always, always walking a fine line between these really niche topics, but trying to make them more a broader interest to a, to a bigger group of listeners. But keeping in mind that, you know, we got to a lot of this, a lot of our audience is these, these practitioners, these more, technically oriented people working on, on climate science or, or water management, um, but to kind of draw some broader interest as well. It's fun to have some interesting stories like in that rising episode that you just mentioned. Well, I'm sure this is probably why you didn't get into it, but I think it's very interesting that they, you know, you guys, it sounds like you're relatively uh, mid to younger career. And a lot of times with these things, the higher ups want this, they want it. And maybe they thought they were pawning it off. And so it's great. I think my listeners, if you're in organizations, you guys are sort of a role model in that get folks that aren't kind of old fuddy duddy white males to, to communicate with folks. And I, 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 I'm sure there's all sorts of history of, you know, how you two ultimately ended up there, but it's, it's, I think it is great that it is you too, because as you know, you're going to, if you keep doing this, you're just going to get more popular people are going to know you just from the podcast, which is kind of a really cool thing. And so it, it is kind of neat that the higher ups didn't step in and take that plum away from you. So kudos to them. Yeah, it's totally weird. Actually, that's already started happening where we'll all be like in meetings at like World Water Week and we'll, someone will randomly come up and be like, oh, yeah, I listened to your podcast while I'm jogging. And I'm just like, oh, my God, right, right. it's fun. That's very that's the coolest thing, right? <laughs> They're learning something and they're getting to know you. So it's, uh, career wise, it's sort of, I think, an interesting thing, but I digress. Let me get in this. I think we're involved, you know, I think, did you say John Matthews is the person? Um, yes. And so I'm just very curious why a podcast? You know, I, I've dealt with quite a few very upscale communication shops within large organizations. And quite frankly, some of them have barely even heard of podcasts. These are like the directors of these comm shops. And yet you guys are doing a podcast. I think that's very admirable. And I guess with John Matthews, is he was just an avid podcast listener, and he's just like, this is something we have to do. It, I'm surprised more groups don't use it. I think one thing I forgot to mention, too, is that this podcast in some ways is an evolution of, of work that we had done in the past with Agua. So we started an interview series that was called Climate is Water. And so this was a video interview series kind of along the same lines um, as far as doing some interviews at a global scale with uh, people working on different projects and covering different topics in each episode, but again, relating back to climate and water. So we had that under our belt. Um, it had, you know, modest returns as far as viewership, people enjoyed it. But I think that in some ways, yeah, like you said, that John is just probably, probably a podcast geek. And this is, I mean, podcasts have been around for a little bit, but at the, but at the same time, they're, I think they're really just now kind of getting more of a foothold and gaining in popularity. So this is another interesting way to package material. And if we keep it a little lighter, a little bit less technical, then uh, in theory, it's something that you might want to listen to on your drive to work or as you're taking a jog. Or I'll say, you know, from August experience, a lot of a lot of people in this world are constantly traveling to conferences and workshops. So why not just download it on your phone and have something to listen to at the airport as well? The the groups that fund you and support you 
and I think just the guests that you have too, that you have quite an international uh, footprint with what you're trying to do there. Do you guys specifically market to the international crowd just based on the networks that you're in, or is it sort of organic? You're just sticking it out there. I mean, do you have a strategy on how you're trying to communicate the, this area of adaptation? I mean, I think it's just reflective of, of Agua as a whole. I, we are an international network, and, and we very much market ourselves that way. But a, a good chunk of our membership is out of the U.S., um, my work is, folk, you know, on the policy side is is very much focused internationally. And even with like a lot of our technical work that we do on kind of bottom up approaches to adaptation, a lot of the workshops and everything that we're doing, they're not in the U.S. Um, and so we are very specifically focused more more internationally. And I think that's kind of just as a consequence of, of AGO itself being a very international network. That being said, you know, I think there's. We've done a few episodes that that have kind of stuff that is more kind of U.S. focused. And I think we could do a few more um, as well, because we do work with like U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, for example. They're very close partners of ours. You know, San Francisco Public Utility District. Uh, we work with them a lot. So so we do have some more U.S. based projects. But I think so far we have really tried to focus internationally just because Agua is such a kind of global network. Yeah, and that was a priority from the outset, really, was that we, even though Ingrid and I are based in the U.S., we're very much uh, international scope, and, and our membership is very, very diverse. I think we have members on six different continents, so we're looking at you, Antarctica. Um, but but we, North Korea. and so we, like Ingrid said, you know, we have some episodes that are U.S.-based, but but we try to keep it international. And and maybe more importantly, we, we also want to highlight a lot of the work that's going on in what I'll call the global South, but you know, some of the, some of the other countries that are outside of Europe and in the U S and in the global West. So uh, we have some specific episodes about Nepal and in Zambia and, but uh, that, you know, we want to recognize that we have a lot of our audience maybe outside the U S but a lot of them are in Europe, but we also have a, we want to take a, a bigger picture and be welcoming to people from all across the globe. So why have you on and i think my previous life i mean this is my day job now and but i was a policy guy education guy influencing policy and i think it would just be a really neat experiment if you guys can sort of track like how the podcast is sort of driving policy discussions and i don't know if you're already seeing it but you know i'm finding my podcast i'm much more influential even on policy than i ever was before and so i i think the fact that you're organizing conversations and a focus around these things. Surprising things happen. I know that's a bit vague, but I, I just think it's something that you guys probably as, as a policy shop should just track, whereas the podcast can really amplify maybe some of the things that you're trying to do. So, and I mean, that, ultimately, that's kind of what what we're we're hoping for. Right. And so, you know, as we're kind of growing and getting bigger, I mean, I think we've already had conversations with people who will say, oh, I listened to this episode, you know, on X, Y or Z or on Crida, which is one of our uh, tools and approaches. And, I, you know, I have questions about that or I think it would be a really good fit, you know, in country X where I'm working. And so really, that's kind of we're hoping to kind of drive this conversation and then and then to ultimately kind of influence um, policy and in a different type of way than what I do in my day job of like going to conferences and sitting in meetings with delegates and those sorts of things, which is a very like dry, <laughs> very long process that can take decades. But with 
you know, podcasting, you get an episode out there and, you know, who knows, it could be a week, a month or, or whatever. And so the right person hears it. And, you know, there's your influence. There's your pressure point. I call those meetings my prisoner time. I attended <laughs> untold meetings that you had to go to. Yeah, always look at yourself as a gateway. You'd be surprised how people feel so isolated in what they do. They think I'm doing adaptation in this sort of vacuum, and you know they don't realize there's this broader universe. So you, you have that kind of role and responsibility. It's, it's really kind of a cool thing. Okay, last question, and I'm going to start with you, Ingrid. If you could recommend anyone to come onto this podcast, who would it be? Dang it. I know you always ask this question. <laughs> you weren't ready. Damn it. I was not ready. Um, let me, let me think. We've already had a lot of my friends. I used to work at WWF. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. All right. So it's fun to hear people like Sean on, I know you just did that long one on WWF. So I know you kind of got the conservation angle. I'm not sure of any single person in particular, but I really appreciated the episode that you did on the climate skeptics. And I know that was a hard episode to do, um, but I, I was kind of just blown away <laughs> a little bit, like listening to that. And so maybe something more along like those lines of like, how do we, cause I'm just thinking more, it, it was interesting to hear his perspective, but then I'm like, how do we engage and move forward. I don't know. I, it, it was really challenging to me and I, I appreciated that. So maybe something more along those lines again. What about you, Alex? Who would you recommend for, for your show or for ours? <laughs> I don't care about your show, my show. All right. Well, uh, I know you've already, I'm, I'm thinking like blue sky, you've already had on Bill McKibben, right? So have you thinking about Al Gore or maybe someone um, that's, if this would be, you know, again, more U.S. focused, which I guess would work well for your show is, but something about the, the, the Green New Deal, you know, someone higher level that might um, be able to talk to your listeners about that. And what are the implications of that uh, in terms of climate change? And we're talking about massive overhaul to infrastructure and policies in the U.S. and kind of just day to day life even. So someone to explain that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Now, I haven't heard my I heard the Green New Deal. I mean, I haven't dug into any details but like it doesn't really touch i guess enough on adaptation i mean it, it does t touch some but finding the right person who could speak to the green new i'm not interested in the mitigation side and i, I had bill mckibben on but i just rarely do the mitigation and so it, it would be good yeah that it's worth um, it, maybe my listeners if you guys know of someone who could really speak to that on the green new deal that would be actually pretty interesting so or the fact that it didn't touch upon adaptation much that in itself is a worthy conversation well guys i think it's very exciting of what you're doing and i think it's a cool history of, of your podcast and looking forward to season three but thanks for coming on thanks a lot for having us thanks a lot doug Hey Adapters, I am here with Kurt Newton, Director of Open Courseware at MIT. Hey Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Hey Doug, it's really great to be here. We've connected a little bit offline, but just for my listeners, what's the name of the podcast? So I worked on a podcast called Climate Conversations, which was produced by uh, this project called Climate X that we had running at MIT for a couple of years. Okay, and so could you give a little bit more of the history of why did you start this podcast in the first place? Sure. So ClimateX was a project that was originally uh, started by a couple of MIT alumni trying to answer the call. What can alumni do to help help the university take stronger action on climate change? And they connected with my organization, MIT Open Learning, who was starting to think about 
sort of engagement experiments to complement all of the the free online learning stuff that we put out. Open Courseware, who I work for, MOOCs like the edX platform, MITx that we've been doing, and said, so, "All right, let's let's do an experiment here and see what we can get people to to connect with." So we did uh, ran through you know written posts. We tried producing webinars and videos. And then we hit upon podcasts as like the place where people go to learn stuff and fit it in with their busy lives. And it's kind of a eureka moment. Worked out really well for us. Okay. So what's the model for your podcast? Is it interview? Is it more monologue? Do you have multiple hosts? What, what is like a typical episode? Yeah, we have, um, we did three seasons and each of the seasons had a little different character. The two alumni uh, co-founders, Rajesh Kasturi-Ragan and uh, Dave Damlur, and I were the three co-hosts. And we would generally kind of rotate through. We would often have like an interview, one interview guest, and we don't want to gang up on them. So often it was like two of the co-hosts plus one of the interview folks. The first season we were... <laughs> we were figuring out as we went along. None of us had any experience doing this stuff. And it was it was pretty much just straight, very lightly inter- edited interview. Second season, also fairly interview driven, uh, but with a lot more kind of forethought about the questions and themes that we were trying to get to. Third season, we uh, we went audacious and tried to do a, a, a an edited, you know, narrated, narrated, scripted kind of approach. And you know, we called it Radio Lab Light. And, uh, wow, we got schooled. That was really, really hard. I mean, <laughs> super, super, super interesting to try to pull off. But, yeah, I, I have just <laughs> almost unspeakable respect for the people that, that can really do that stuff well now, just having a, a glimpse at how much it takes. Yeah, I did something similar. I did this California DAP series and I actually worked with several people on it. And that's, I think, how those NPR podcasts do it. They've got a team of folks and it just, it's a, a tremendous amount of work. So yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. I went to a, a podcast conference hosted at Harvard this fall and uh, a few of the producers from Radiolab were there. They showed one two minute clip, 40 different versions in, uh, that they went through to like nail that one two minute clip. It's like, all right, uh, we're not in that league, <laughs> but wow, I'm impressed. Oh, brother. Okay, so how would you recommend people use your archive? And so could you explain that um, you're sort of wrapping up the podcast right now, and I, I, I think what you have there is, is a great resource, and hopefully it'll have a long shelf life. But uh, how should people dig into it and I guess maybe share a few titles from some of the, the episodes and such? Yeah, in the first season, actually one of the ones that's really stuck with me, we recorded our first episode on the day when Donald Trump announced the official you know, withdraw intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. We spoke with with John Riley from the uh, Joint Program at MIT, who is one of the one of the key people doing all of the modeling work that underlies a lot of the IPCC climate models. And their work was uh, kind of tragically twisted around and misused in Trump's statements. And uh, there was a lot of media coverage around what was going on there. And it was it was great to talk to John about. You know, what motivates him in doing this work and why climate models are important. And that really, uh, that kind of set the tone for, uh, for the podcast in a sense. When we got it into the second season, we were, we were realizing, you know, it, it felt really appropriate to, to take a specific focus on climate justice and all the different facets of that. You know, we had great conversations with so many people, many of whom aren't really affiliated with MIT, but we felt like we're, were super important to bring into the, the conversation, the perspective amongst 
communities like MIT that tend to be very focused on solutions, you know, so push pause just a little bit and let's be like super thoughtful about um, the implications of some of the things that we're doing. So, you know, we talked to, uh, you know, an indigenous uh, scholar, Kyle Pose White. Uh, we talked to the leader of the NAACP's climate program, Jackie Patterson, and just brought uh, a really different perspective to what's going on. Our third season focused on education, and one of my favorites there is is talking to one of the founders of Mothers Out Front, the uh, advocacy group, super effective. Co-founder Vanessa Rule talked with us about how they, in kind of an informal education sense, create these really empowered, unsuspecting activists, people who never thought they'd be doing this kind of stuff. And they're very thoughtful and thorough about how they do it, and I learned a ton from that. In the recruitment of guests, is it MIT sending people your way, or do you have a lot of flexibility in, in, in who you were choosing? And You had those themes to the different seasons, but uh, how did you literally pick guests? Yeah, that was totally us. Again, this not being like this sort of gray, or we, we were not like officially MIT institutional climate podcast. We went where the muse took us. So um, I've been doing a variety of climate-related projects around campus for a few years and gotten to know folks. So I could call them up and say, hey, you know, I know you're doing this interest, interesting thing. Come and talk to us. One of the things we tried to do in that first season in particular was give a little more exposure to uh, people who are not like the most preeminent faculty. First of all, they're like super busy and hard to schedule. But secondly, there's people who are in, you know, the graduate students and postdocs who are doing really important work and maybe don't have the same opportunities to talk about what they're doing. And so we tried to bring a few of them in. Uh, it, was, it was really great to make those kind of connections. You and I probably know better than a lot of people what the climate space is for podcasts, but do you feel like there's any niche that isn't currently being filled? And so you might have touched upon the topic and let's say the justice, but do you think that is there an area in regards to climate change that, that there could be a podcast that could fill it? I am expecting to see you know a bunch of new climate podcasts that really go go deep into wrestling with the, the kind of Green New Deal framing of, of climate climate action or a policy going forward, you know, it's this like inextricable intersection between, you know, climate jobs and justice. And, you know, there's people who are doing really important work around that. And it's a conversation that needs to happen. You know, let's, let's be honest, nobody has all the answers to this stuff, but uh, I find podcasting is such a powerful way to spur the conversation along. I'm looking forward to that in particular over the next couple of years. What's your relationship like with your listeners? I think that's the, been the most, I guess, exciting thing about starting the podcast. But uh, any sort of dynamics there? Would you hear from your listeners quite often? We hear a bit. You know, one of the one of the things I wish we could have invested more on is like developing a community. Some of my favorite podcasts have done a really nice job, and America Adapts is one of them of of setting up a, a group on Facebook and having people, you know you know, suggest comments and you know, suggest topics and, and comment on what's going on. The nature of this broader uh, experiment that was going on in, in my open learning organization, we, we were trying to build a, a, a more education focused alternative to that kind of community. And so we didn't play in that space. I kind of wish we could have, but uh, didn't happen. I'd say my, one of my favorite listener uh, connections, I was at the, uh, the drawdown learn conference mm -hmm. uh, last fall in upstate New York and uh, I met this, um, I think it was a high school physics teacher <laughs> who uh, heard me speaking and said, 
I know you. <laughs> right. You do that podcast. Uh, uh, really uh, warmed my heart. That was that was pretty fun. Voice celebrity. Okay, this last question is, is if you could recommend any guest to come on my podcast, who would it be? Yeah, well, the the trend you've been on lately, it, you, you touched on, you know, like Managed Retreat and, you know, uh, there's an organization called Climigration, which uh, is out of the Consensus Building Institute, which has an MIT footprint. I think they're doing some really interesting work in how to have communities have those those hard conversations and what it's like. We had one of their folks, Pat Field, on in, uh, in our season one, and uh, I would love to see an adaptation expert such as yourself dig in and, uh, and continue that conversation with them. Great suggestion. Yeah, I'm just pondering trying to do like even kind of a big dive on it, multiple guests, and hopefully going on location and even you know finding some sponsorship to do that because that is just going to be a huge issue in the years to come. So, but no, great. Yeah. I, yeah. Go on. Go can, on. I, can I suggest another one? Um, yeah, yes. You know, depending on which which way you want to go, one of uh, one of my colleagues in uh, my ad- advocacy work is uh, started a program called Crew Communities Responding to Extreme Weather. And they're going around, you know, kind of neighborhood by neighborhood, town by town in eastern Massachusetts, uh, trying to facilitate community conversations about how to prepare ourselves and be more resilient in the face of what's to come. And it's I think it'd be really interesting to to learn how they're approaching this this opportunity, what models and methods they're finding really clicking for people and, and uh, where that's heading. Is, uh, so that's that's headed up by Craig Altimos. Okay, great. Another great suggestion. Again, thanks for coming on. And I know you're sort of wrapping it up with the the podcast right now, but thanks for producing the content that you have. I mean, just incredibly useful material. And I encourage people to go and discover all the, the conversations that you've had. But any sort of final thoughts before we check out here? Yeah, um, I can't remember if I if I mentioned this and talking about what has happened and where people can find the Climate Conversations podcast. But the MIT Climate Portal is about to launch it's a new podcast. It's going to be called Today I Learned Climate, kind of eight to 10 minute short, short hits on specific topics. They're in particular like um, interpreting what's going on behind the scenes on particular news events, you know, clouds, airplanes, hurricanes, that kind of thing, and providing this like more in-depth perspective on, on how scientists and uh, scholars know what they know. I think that could be a really interesting contribution to the, uh, to the conversation and encourage people to check that out when it comes. All right, cool. Thanks for coming on, Kurt. My pleasure. Hey, Adapters. I am here with Ross Kenyon, host of the podcast, Reversing Climate Change. Hey, Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, we've sort of chatted through email off and on for a bit, and I'm excited to have you on. And let's just jump right into it. Even though I think it's all it's said in your title, but what is the Reversing Climate Change podcast all about? Yeah, we tried not to bury the lead on that one. Right. Well, I'm lead strategist with Nori, the carbon removal marketplace, and carbon removal means a lot to us. We wanted to talk about how not just to mitigate, not just how to adapt, but also the possibilities involved in actually reversing climate change, which we realize is quite a large goal, but it's also the Nori company motto and what we're focused on. So we try to bring on people who are either working on policy or have businesses that are trying to get into the carbon removal game. Sometimes we go a bit broader than that. It isn't always carbon removal, but that's where our heart is and what we try to focus on. Okay. And is Nori a, a private business or is it a nonprofit? That's right. It's a, it's a business. 
Okay. And you've been doing the podcast for how long? Well, we, we did a hackathon in the late summer of 2017. And as part of our uh, MVP for Nori, we put out a first podcast episode and tried it out. And then we started doing it regularly that fall or winter. So we've been doing it weekly or mostly weekly for more than a year now. I think we're in the in the 60s for episodes that have come out. Cool. Okay. I'm, I'm being square here. I, I thought I kind of knew what a hackathon is, but how are you using it in what context? A uh, hackathon is, is some sort of event that someone will put on. But if you want to um, build like a very basic prototype of a business or an idea, they'll have some sort of competition where you build something and send it to judges and see what works out. So we did this through a uh, consensus, which uh, in the blockchain space is it's sort of like the main company for Ethereum. They're quite well known. And they did a, a hackathon for blockchain for social impact. And then we won in the energy and environment category when we did it. And we got a lot of traction off of it. People like what we were doing. So we decided to commit to it and keep going. Very cool. <laughs> I guess I should know that. That's me in the uh, non-private uh, sector. Okay, share a few of the episodes that you think would give my listeners a sense of what you try to do. Off the top of my head, one of the ones that I really like is we had the astrobiologist David Grinspoon on. And he has an amazing book called Earth in Human Hands that I really like, which is about, if you go back and watch old Carl Sagan uh, videos, you watch Cosmos or you read P Pale Blue Dot. There's a lot in there about climate change and basically how planetary science, the, the origination of that as a discipline was in looking at the comparative climatology of Mars and Venus and seeing how Earth is changing. So in looking out, we were able to look back in on ourselves and then talking about climate change as a potential great filter event where uh, why don't we see other civilizations in the universe? And one possibility is that there's great filters where civilizations get to a point where there's a great challenge, but they're not able to supersede it. And climate change may be one of those events uh, where uh, industrial technology changes the climate and humans don't have either the political or technological capacity to adapt quickly enough, which is something that I know you care a lot about. But David framing, uh, David Grinspoon framing that as a sort of Sagan-esque kind of problem, I think is really unique in the climate space. And that's maybe my personal favorite episode. But we also have a lot of episodes with companies that are doing direct air capture, which is, you know, industrially removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And uh, we've talked a little bit about that uh, with regards to the built environment. So there's ways of treating aggregate that goes into uh, cement and concrete that can actually be carbon negative, or theoretically, this is coming in the future. Uh, there's also one we have with New Light Technologies, where they're trying to turn captured methane and CO2 into consumer products. So companies that are trying to use carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that are captured in very productive ways. It isn't just altruistic. It isn't just some government policy. There's real businesses being built around that. And then, of course, we have our first methodology for carbon removal is regenerative agriculture and changing ag practices so that their soils begin sucking in and storing carbon dioxide. So opportunistically, there's quite a lot of episodes about agriculture and the possibilities for carbon removal therein. I'm assuming that you've covered geoengineering quite well. That's kind of touches that issue directly, right? Yeah, we have. It's been a while since we've had an episode, but in the early days of the podcast, we had a couple. We did some stuff on solar radiation management, and obliquely, we've referred to things like iron shavings in the ocean. And I think those are great episodes because 
climate change sometimes has this sort of like earthiness to it, like a little bit of a hippie permaculture sort of framing. And then when you talk to people who are interested in geoengineering, which, you know, irrespective of, of how you might feel about that, if you think it's a great danger and those are all good conversations to have. But there's something that's exciting about it because it has this science fiction element to it, right? There's like this this creativity that's just pulsing all the way through it in a way that is sometimes lacking in more conventional, green, sustainable conversations. So I think it at least makes for great podcasting, if nothing else. Yeah, I've been asked a few times, why haven't I done a geoengineering? You know, it's in its own way, it's, it's adapting to climate change. And I guess I haven't figured out where I come down on the issue and I lean against it, but that's not thought out enough. And so I guess I don't want to do the podcast until I feel like I have a firmer opinion on it because I think it would just be a better conversation. But obviously, it's right up your alley on what you're trying to do there. So, yes, I should. I've been listening to it. I should listen to one of those episodes. Yeah, we I mean, carbon removal has often been framed as part of geoengineering. And I don't think it really fits so neatly in there, but people still fight over the taxonomy of that. You should do it. I mean, uh, your tone that I've heard in, in your podcast tends to be pretty fair and open minded. So I think as long as you came across as curious, no one would accuse you of supporting something horribly dangerous. So I think you're I think you're relatively safe, Doug, with just the, your approach. I got to work on that open mindedness, Jiminy. You know, it took me reading three, four, five, six articles to figure out sort of what blockchain is in regards to digital currency. What, what does blockchain have to do with climate change? I, I don't get it. And it's, you know, it's obviously something you guys deal with. It is. And in some ways, I think the attention that's given to blockchain is is a bit overplayed. And in many cases, it's a solution in search of a problem. But it's pretty core to what we do for the uh, it being verifiable and public and trustable and having this data uh, being accessible to people. There's also really cool things you can do with cryptocurrency in creating these economies with different incentives. Like one way of thinking about it is you can create new monetary systems and new incentives to do things that haven't been done before. But this hasn't always worked out uh, as people would like it to. And I think for Nori, we want it to be one of those features where you can customize. Like if you want that level of control, you can have it and it's there. But for the average user, you don't have to have anything to do with it. And it works as simply as an e-commerce experience like Amazon. But so I think it's like a very useful back end technology in quite a lot of ways, uh, the details of which may may uh, bore your listeners or thrill them. I'm not sure which. But, yeah, I think it's it's one of those things where it gets more attention than it should oftentimes. Well, I think if you want to raise money or if you just sound like you are savvy, it, you know, throw blockchain in there. And I, I don't think that's what you're doing, but I was considering changing my name to America Daps Blockchain just for the hell of it and see if it led to, you know, additional <laughs> financial interest. <laughs> just, yeah. uh, it's the blockchain. It just has this, you know, as you just described, it made sort of sense, but, uh, it's always been very complicated to me. Even the literal aspects of what blockchain is, it's, it's not an easy read and I don't consider myself that dumb, but anyway, I thought it was interesting as part of what you guys do. Yeah, uh, definitely. I could I could send you something. I should probably just give the most basic definition I can think of is it's imagine being able to clear financial transactions without a single trustable entity. So for something like Bitcoin, you don't have to trust the Federal Reserve or Chase or one of these other banks. You're, you're trusting a decentralized network of thousands and thousands of people and computers. And there's not a centralized point of failure. And also it 
Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just said, but what about the notion if, if you are sort of bringing blockchain into whatever you do, it just, it, it, I hear it's a huge energy consumer. How does that play into how you guys approach it? That's true. And it's something that we've spoken about a lot. This is again, one of those questions where I'm like, how much information should I assume the listener knows? Um, but I'll, I'll be a bit conservative. The way that Bitcoin, that's called proof of work, that consensus model. And you're basically spending electricity to, to guarantee the security of the network. And Ethereum, which we have, we built Nori on top of is proof of stake. So it's a way that it simulates the game theory of proof of work, but without the energy expenditure. So we chose Ethereum for many reasons, but uh, one of the one of the bigger ones is that in the future, the energy usage will be negligible. And it hasn't fully switched over to that yet. But you are correct to point that out. I always hear it's like every few weeks someone says that it's Bitcoin's energy expenditure is equal to Israel or Denmark or whatever country it is at that week on uh, Vice or whoever's talking about it. It is it is a problem. Hmm, interesting. OK, so any future episodes you can kind of highlight to give uh, people a sense of what's coming up? What is coming up? Do you do seasons or are you just pretty much weekly? Just weekly. We, we haven't taken a breather like that. And I wonder if that might be a thing to do. We've taken weeks off when it was holidays, but yeah, otherwise we try to way. try to keep going. Um, Who's on next week? Tell me that. Who is? Well, we just had the Land Institute on um, this week. Um, which is really good. They uh, are working on perennializing agriculture. So right now, agriculture relies on annuals, which are hard on the soil and prone to boom and bust cycles. And perennials just have uh, are much better for the soil, can absorb a lot more carbon, are more resilient in terms of drought and, and uh, various climate change. Uh, the climate change future, I think perennials are going to be quite big. Besides that, we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. So reversing climate change, they're all somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour. We've been trying to keep them shorter lately, but we found out that people wanted short form podcasts about specifically about carbon removal and quite uh, tightly done. So those are all about 10 minutes. And that's been a new show that's separate from reversing climate change that we've done. Um, so I might I might recommend checking that one out as well. Okay, so a question I ask for every one of my guests is if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? Oh, I actually sent you uh, someone that I think would be really good for America Adapts. This is for your show, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, for, okay, so for America Adapts. Yeah, uh, I think his name is Matthew Kahn. He's at USC, I believe, in oh, Los Angeles. Um, but he has a really good book called Climatopolis. That is about how assuming that the prices aren't distorted by certain types of policy, how people will be encouraged to make safer decisions in light of a changing climate. So things like if we uh, uh, subsidize insurance for people who live near the coast, you're going to have more people who live by the coast. So but if they had to pay the true cost of that, maybe you would have less people paying to insure their own property there because it'd just be too expensive and they would move to places that would be safer from climate change. That's one example. But I think his book is is a really great application of microeconomics to uh, climate change and how people will adapt. So I really hope you have uh, him on. I would like to have him on reversing climate change too. It's a great topic. And yeah, just keep keep doing what you're doing. I I really, I told you this before, I respect that you have people on that aren't necessarily people who are big on climate change or you might disagree with. And I think that's really important. And I, I respect that you do that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I got to do more of that. It's not always easy. <laughs> like, who are you going to actually recruit? But I'm hoping this year I'm going to get another one or two on. So, yeah. 
Ross, thanks for coming on. I certainly appreciate what you're doing, and it's a cool topic that you're doing. So thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Doug. I appreciate the support. I like the open spirit of collaboration you're encouraging among us climate podcasters. So thank you for having me. Hey, Adapters. I am here with Greg Dalton, founder and host of the Climate One podcast. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Good to be here. So you've been podcasting for a while, but for those who aren't familiar with Climate One, what is it all about? What, what do you talk about on that podcast? We talk about anything that's connected to climate and ranges from the usual conversations about policy, technology, business, pricing carbon. And lately we got getting into some of the spiritual realm, psychology, human cognition, linguistics, how our brains are processing climate threats and opportunities. Okay. And so you, this, I find this kind of interesting. You do this out of the Commonwealth Club. What's the Commonwealth Club? Commonwealth Club is a 100-year-old public forum based in San Francisco, founded by journalists in 1903, and it's a civic forum. There's not too many of them around the country, so we have about 400 events a year where authors come in, intellectuals, policy leaders, and talk about literature, arts, science, politics, business, the issues of the day. And so we record with a live audience, which I think is different than a lot of podcasts. Um, so we, a lot of ours are done with a live audience, people on stage, and an audience of about 100 or 200 people. Yeah, it sounds great. But at the same time, I'm, uh, I think it's, you know, it, it's amazing that you do that because you have a bit more control when it's to that one on one. So that's great. You have that sort of dynamic. So must be kind of fun for you to have those conversations. Yeah, live audience is wonderful. It's, it's a challenge these days to get people in a room. Uh, there is a lot more control when you're, when you edit things in post and when these one on one kinds of conversations. It takes a lot of effort to get, um, people in a room these days. The payoff though is it's an experience and you get to mingle people afterwards and people, we get to, um, see the people who are listening and there's live questions from the audience as part of every podcast as well. You've been doing this for a while, but you, you're really, I think you're in the radio space and you're, you know, have that in-person interview, but how long have you been doing the climate one as a podcast? So I went to the Arctic in 2007 on a trip with some journalists, Tom Brokaw and Forrest Sawyer and, and some scientists and started the podcast shortly thereafter. I had this life-changing epiphany on a Russian icebreaker up in the Arctic in 2007, which was shortly after Inconvenient Truth came out. There was a big IPCC report, public opinion, concern about climate change really uh, peaked in 2007. It was just before Copenhagen. So I've been doing it about 11, 12 years now. And, and so it's been published as a podcast in that time frame, 11, 12 years. Yeah, I think I was in a previous position here at the Commonwealth Club. We started our podcast in 2006, the Commonwealth Club. And um, so Climate One's been a podcast for at least 10 years and been on some local radio stations and now increasingly more radio stations around the country. Okay, that that is amazing that you've been around that long. And some of my questions are associated with that. But I, could you give a flavor? Of, and don't be shy. I mean, some of the guests that you have on on your podcast is really quite amazing. But can you kind of talk about maybe some of the names that have come on? Sure. One of the first really big ones was Hillary Clinton in 2010 uh, when she was Secretary of State. And Secretaries of State typically uh, don't speak much in the United States. Their job is the world outside the United States. And, and particularly in this case, since you know she wanted her boss's job and she campaigned against Obama. So I think she spent a lot of time outside the United States, as Secretaries of State do. But she came in 2010 uh, to Climate One, and we had over a thousand people there. And I was 
was having dinner the night before with with Jim Hansen, and I said, uh, "What should I ask Hillary Clinton about tomorrow?" He said, <laughs> the, "The the damn pipeline." I said, "I did honestly did not know what pipeline he was talking about." Oh, and he and so I asked her a question about the Keystone pipeline, and challenged her a little bit, and she said she was quote inclined to approve it, and then that got a lot of attention, national national press attention, and attention in the U.S. Senate. And that kind of kicked off some of the debate about Keystone Pipeline and concerns that the Obama administration was fast-tracking Keystone. And we know how later that that played out for years and years and years until eventually he rejected the pipeline. So Hillary Clinton, Al Gore has been on, Jane Goodall – uh, one of my favorites, Graham Nash, we talked about, um, he lives in Hawaii. He's been seeing climate impacts, all sorts of people and famous and, and not famous. I've interviewed, um, you know, a six year old student who played, uh, the villain in a school play who was Mr. Mr. Carbon, you know, and he's so quite a range of people, probably seven, 800 people or so now over the 12 years. Okay. Not too many podcasts actually get to make news or maybe even influence behavior. And uh, I, I read a little bit about Dan Ackerson, and I, I'm not sure if he's still the CEO of General Motors, but he came on the Climate One. And can you maybe tell that story of how that sort of influenced the decision he made? Sure. So Dan Ackerson was then CEO of General Motors. He was a person who kind of, remember, they went into bankruptcy, taxpayer bailout, and he was a person who came from the Carlisle Group to kind of, you know, resurrect General Motors. And there were some activists who were coming to the live event, and they were planning on on uh, disrupting it because General Motors was uh, funding the Heartland Institute. Uh, now, Dan, and I we got wind of these people were going to kind of cause a ruckus during uh, this is the thing with doing a live event is that it's open to the public and people can stand up and shout and disrupt. It doesn't happen very often. And I went to them and said, Hey, I'm the climate guy. We're, I'm going to ask him about climate change. Why are you going to disrupt this? And they said, well, because they're funding the Heartland Institute, which we know, you know, propagates misinformation about um, climate. And I said, well, look, I'm going to ask him about that. So one of the first questions I said, why is GM given $10,000 to uh, the Heartland Institute? And, you know, this is a guy running a, you know, <laughs> huge global corporation. And he said, I think convincingly, I didn't know that. Let me look into it. <laughs> um, he obviously doesn't sign off on every $10,000 grant. And they looked into it and GM through us, you know, decided to no longer fund the Heartland Institute because at that point they were coming out with a Chevy Volt trying to say Ackerson was quite convincing. Look, my granddaughter, I care about her. I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And so uh, as a result of that, uh, GM stepped away from the Heartland Institute. Awesome. That's great. You could influence in just within your conversation. Have you, I'm just curious, have you had just a outright skeptic on, on Climate One? Not, uh, I would say a, you know, a, a denier. I interviewed T Boone Pickens okay. and, uh, you know, Texas oil man. He got, he was out there for quite a while, uh, you know, pitching natural gas as a solution. And he doesn't really like to talk about climate. You know, he's Texas. They, you know, he'll like to talk about solutions. Um, so people who have different views about the, the, you know, the urgency or, or, or the, the magnitude. That might be one person, uh, but I've never interviewed, you know, some of the, you know, people who are just flat out deniers. There might be people who say, there's a fair number of people who say, well, you know, I think we need to solve it. Technology will solve it. I think 
uh, a lot of people are over alarmed and you know are too uh, too alarmist about it. I think you know it's 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 a real deal and we need to work on it. But um, so people who are on say on the Yale spectrum who are more concerned than alarmed. In fact, I interviewed Andy Revkin and he said he's more concerned than alarmed. Hmm. I I guess you have to put some thought into it. I certainly would encourage it. I. I actually had Mark Morano on. You, uh, you've probably heard of Mark Morano. He's like a prof- sure. professional skeptic. And sure. the whole episode was around what motivates him. It wasn't about debating him over, over the science. And then Randy Olson, I don't know if you cross paths with Randy. Um, no. he, came, he, does, he does science communication, and he knows Mark. And we basically dissected our conversation with Mark, and Mark knew we were going to do this. And it was overwhelmingly my most popular episode. People were a little nervous. Well, you're going to let this guy come on. But it was just a useful tool behind the scenes. And so you just got to be careful. Don't have someone on your show to just debate the issues. But like, okay, what really are these motivations? So anyway. So I'm curious. What was Morano's motivation? Was it just the enjoys? Some people just enjoy being contrarian. Some people enjoy the attention. What do you think motivates Morano? I think right there's a, a contrary and he gave his history like, you know, and you, you got to take it with a grain of salt. It, he was a lovely guy, but it was he, he told he went all the way back to the 80s and being a Reagan supporter. And then, you know, he went to the Rio um, summit. Remember the the big uh, it was in 92, just the I forgot the, the accords that they were happening down there. And he went to that cover it and he just heard something that changed his mind. And I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. It was kind of nonsensical. And I think he was working for Rush Limbaugh at the time. So he was obviously coming with an agenda. But he just walked you through his history. And you're just like, this is like the history of this kind of person. And mm-hmm. what, But probably what stood out for a lot of people is that he wasn't in it for the money. A lot of people thought, oh, he's just got a pipeline to oil money. And he, not really. And so I think that was very interesting. But mm-hmm. it, it was cool. good. It was a good conversation. Yeah, I'll listen to that. That sounds interesting. You've been doing this for a while. And I'm just curious. Climate change as part of our sort of national, international conversation has changed quite a bit. What has sort of changed that you can step back and look at when you first started and what's happening now? How how are we talking about it differently? Well, my evolution or migration has been from, you know, starting the climate conversation often starts with chemistry and physics and faraway places, the poles or even, you know, space and the climate conversation gradually has been moving from the natural sciences to the cognitive and human sciences and the social sciences. You know, the IPCC is gradually, and I even asked John Holdren about this, who advised Obama in the White House for eight years, that starting to, you know, why is it more happening? Well, is it, is it politics? Is it the technology? And I'm increasingly thinking, uh, curious and interested in the human uh, aspect to it, why human brains, human beings are not responding to the flashing red lights. You know, if this building was on fire, you know, everybody in it would run out. You know, our planet's on fire and people are kind of walking around with business as usual. So what is it about the fear, the threat, the worry, the emotional, psychological, the human uh, dimension of this? Because, you know, if we were just rational beings, as I was taught in college, you know, responding to facts, a lot more would be happening. But that's not happening. And I think it's not as simple to say that there's manufactured doubt by the Koch brothers and dark forces. Yes, that's true. But I think that there's a lot more to it than that, that it, that's why we're not doing more. You know, there, there's deniers, but there's, there's Berkeley liberals who are, I think, know it's a concern and they're not doing as much as they can to get electric car, put solar on their roof, whatever, you know, get off the meat, whatever it is. There's a lot of people who are, quote, in the choir who could be doing more. 
And I think that's an area that I'm increased, you know, really interested in these days. In an area where the, the conversation has changed, has, is going to that kind of the behavioral cognitive area, as well as the, you know, the human part of dealing with all the anxiety and stress of uh, fires in California, you know, all the extreme weather we're seeing, that's, that's adding to people's stress and worry. There are quite a few climate podcasters out there now. I'm just curious, have you followed that? Has it been sort of this area that you sort of, okay, there was no one really doing it when you started, but this evolution of more podcasts that are kind of coming out, have you, have you tracked that at all? Not systematically. I, mean, I, I listen to some. Yeah, I listen to the Energy Gang or you know uh, Jason Bordoff, the Energy Exchange, I think, is out of Columbia, yours. Uh, warm regards, different ones, kind of dabble a little bit. I think, obviously, Serial changed podcasting, and it be- went from this kind of fringe, uh, you know, independent producer kind of thing to, you know, big business, a lot of money come coming in, and be- podcasts became, like, legit. I mean, I was a journalist back at the, at the Industry Standard magazine back in the late 90s, and it, print was king, and then online was kind of the B team. And, and so, you know, podcasting was kind of the B team for a while to to terrestrial radio and broadcast, and that's no longer the case. You know, you can say you're a podcaster, you're legit, and in many ways they're, yeah, and radio sees podcasting as the future. So I think adaptation and podcasting have both getting gaining traction as technology changes and as the climate changes. Good to hear. <laughs> Any advice you can give climate podcasters out there since you've been doing it and you've I think you've been able to find new topics and new areas that they can keep it up. It's a very sobering and sometimes depressing topic. Any sort of just general advice that for all these people kind of talking about it now? You know, people sometimes come to me, a couple of people have come to me and said, I want to start a podcast. How do you know, how do you think about it? And I just started doing it and ma- making it up. And, and really, my background comes out of traditional journalism, mainly print. You know, I went to the Columbia J School, etc. So I'm more old school journalism and podcasting is often more personality and host driven, driven by the personality than uh, there's more personality and, and banter and chatter in a lot of podcasts than um, is in sort of, you know, traditional public radio or, or journalism. So that's an area where I've been had to learn a little bit how much of my voice, my opinion do I put into it. So I don't have any, you know, blanket advice. I mean, if people just do what's what's passionate and interesting to them, it'll be interesting to the audience. And the more people doing this, I think it's cool that you're doing this episode. And so we, the more people listening to Climate pa- Podcast, the better. And having the conversation about these things, it's what we need. Any upcoming guests you can share? Carlos Curbelo is a former Republican member of Congress from the southern tip of Florida. He's coming out with Ryan Costello, um, who was a Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. And, and Costello now is running a and is part of an organization that's trying to get carbon pricing. That'll be pretty interesting. We have a, a professor from University of California, San Francisco, that's talking about how getting out in nature, actually, uh, if you spend 20 minutes in the woods, your cognitive functioning increases, your your ability to solve problems, your attention span is uh, is longer. So the point there is that, you know, trying to get used to connect to nature so that they have an interest to um, preserving it and protecting it and uh, as the climate changes. Those are just a, a couple of the people. It's, we have an event coming up, one on, on Tesla, which is the gift that keeps giving, right? People love to talk about Tesla. So some journalists talking about Tesla. I can't drive down the street with my 15-year-old son without him pointing out any Tesla. <laughs> just everyone that drives by Tesla. 
Well, that's great. You got Carlos Cabello. He, um, I'm originally from Florida in a previous life. I worked for the state there and we got to go lobby his office right when he kind of started. And he was one of those go-to people on environmental issues and especially climate change. So that's, I know he got voted out of office, but that's great. You can still give him a platform to talk. His staffer said he, they wish that climate was talked about more in the election. If it was, they might have won, which, uh, you know, said no Republican candidate ever. But it's an interesting <laughs> twist. Christ. Yeah, he's still, I think, climate's part of his identity and his platform. It's legacy. Okay, last question here, and I ask all my guests, if you <laughs> you have a lot of uh, connections, if you could recommend any guest to come on my podcast, who would it be? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think you, maybe you've done this, but the people in Louisiana, you know, the, the, the Huma Nation, the people who are kind of America's first internal climate refugees, people who are you know, moving out of the bayou because of and the federal government's paying for that. You know, those are the people we tend to think of climate refugees and moving as far away in time and space. And those people who are moving um, in Alaska and Louisiana now. So uh, I've tried to reach those people. It's been a little tough, but that would be some people I think would be a very compelling human story for what a lot of people don't know is happening in this country today. Yeah, great suggestion. I've talked to some people that have kind of dealt with it, but not in actual tribal representatives. And it is tricky, as you're probably encountering. I just recorded with a tribal person from Michigan State and... Yeah, you just have you have to be very sensitive and even who you interview. So, but great topic. You know, Greg, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you are a leader in this space and we all look up to you and all the the conversations that you have, but thanks again for coming on. Great. Thank you, Doug. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to a truly epic episode. Thanks to all my guests from All A Climate Podcast. You guys are doing amazing things and I was honored you came on my show. I hope my listeners check out your shows. I have links to subscribe for each of your podcasts in my episode notes. For those interested in how this episode came together, I originally thought I might interview four or five other climate podcasts, but I kept reaching out and kept getting positive responses. This was so much fun to do, to talk shop with other climate podcasters. I naively thought that I could have these conversations in five to ten minutes, but each of those went a bit past that. I could have had an hour-long discussion with each of these hosts on their podcast, but I wanted to try to include as many as possible in a single episode. I think these eight represent the true diversity of the conversations going on out there in climate change. There are other climate podcasts out there doing great work, but these are the ones I wanted to share with you. Surprisingly, even now, there aren't a lot of climate podcasts, which is just odd since we're talking about the fate of the world. That said, I have a feeling more climate podcasts will be coming out in the weeks and months and years ahead as this issue just becomes more prominent. We should welcome them all, since each host brings a unique voice and hopefully some great content for you listeners. Also, I hope my listeners see that if you have something to say, you too can get into the podcast space. It doesn't have to be on climate change. Maybe you've been thinking about starting your own wildlife podcast or a public health podcast or international diplomacy. As you can see, these podcasts get started in all sorts of ways. Take the leap. You won't regret it. Okay, some upcoming episodes. Tribal Rep Kyle White from Michigan State is out soon, and we take a deep dive into indigenous adaptation work and proper ways to engage tribal communities. There's actually a few fireworks in that episode. And former cultural resource adaptation coordinator with the National Park Service, Dr. Marcy Rockman, will talk about climate change and historic preservation. And I'm recording with famed climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann very soon. That's an awesome lineup ahead. Okay, just a reminder, America Daps is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find the links to the We Did It donate page in the show notes. 
Also, if you are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. I've had many partners, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard University, UCLA. There's so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I was just the keynote speaker at the Arizona Model United Nations Summit at the University of Arizona. That was amazing. I got to speak in front of 600 high school students all there to learn how to make the world a better place through collaboration and cooperation. It was very humbling to speak to this group. My pitch to them, climate change is their future, and we're counting on them to save the world. It was an awesome vibe there. Very cool, and thanks for inviting me. I've been doing these keynote presentations, and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me at americadapts.org. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook group and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. We are having some great conversations on there. I share updates of what I've been up to, but listeners share awesome stories and just great articles and just what's happening in the climate change universe. Okay, and on that note, I love hearing from you. I have started this new thing, Letters from Adapters. You know, I won't necessarily have to read your letter, but if you just want to say hi or have an idea for a guest, just reach out, send me an email. It's the highlight of my week when I hear from you guys. And sometimes it actually does lead to some really cool things. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.